Hi, my name is Michelle Fiordaliso. I'm the co-host of The One Is Now. The One Is Now was created at the beginning of the pandemic as a way to help people navigate the uncertain times we find ourselves living in. My co-host, Zora Olunga-Reed, is on hiatus working for Rock the Vote until the election. Today, I'll be talking to Rameshwar Das, a writer and photographer who lives on the east end of Long Island and who has spent great periods of time in India. He co-authored three books with Ram Das, including his forthcoming memoir, Becoming Ram Das, which will be released in January of 2021. Hello, Ramesh. Hi, Michelle. How are you today? I don't know. If I see him, I'll ask him. <laughs> I thought it would be great to have you on the show because we are living in uncertain times. And sometimes the only thing that can help us make sense of uncertain times is holding a, a macro perspective uh, or seeing things from some other angle than we've been looking at them. And so I wanted your take. I know that that you have spent a lot more time than I have in spiritual study and that you've spent great periods of time with Ram Dass, who is very dear to my heart. And, um, and so I, I wanted to hear what you thought about the times we find ourselves living in. Well, the macro perspective, certainly, uh, you know, it ranges from seeing the planet from the blue marble perspective of, uh, the space station to seeing this as a uh, kind of an inner battlefield like the Bhagavad Gita. And I think any way that we can break out of the perspective of uh, seeing this in just our own uh, terms of pain and anxiety and disturbance is uh, helpful. How do you think we do that? I mean, I, I'm used to using sort of the meditation toolkit that I've found uh, helpful, but also just trying to recast the narrative away from the uh, personalities and the ideologies to uh, just seeing the forces at work and uh, uh, especially how they're reflected in our internal states in our own feelings and our relationships and um, how we uh, feel when we wake up in the morning. So are you saying in a, in a certain way we, we need to look at what we are bringing to what's going on around us? From a, a, a real outside view of um, what's happening, so much of this reality is a projection, you know, what they call in uh, India, Maya, that um, creation of our uh, consciousness and both collective and individual. So are we actually sense. creating what we're seeing in the world? Isn't it obvious? Are, are we actually creating what we're seeing in the world? <laughs> it, it seems obvious to me, but it, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. uh, on a collective level, I think on a societal level, definitely. Ways that we can grapple with it and deal with it are, are to just allow those things to flow through us internally and, and observe them and try not to get always so uh, caught in the melodrama. Well, I know we were talking about, you know, as you talk about identities and personalities, and if you 
think about Ramdas's life, you know, he had very distinct identities and personalities, which you could probably speak more articulately about than I could regarding, you know, I mean, go ahead, you you do it. I'll, I'll step back <laughs> just in terms of the different identities he had. And well, he was a good messenger for some of that Eastern wisdom, because he passed through so many of the phases that we all do. I mean, he grew up in an upper middle Jewish family outside of Boston and had a privileged but painful uh, childhood. He was overweight and, you know, sexually confused and really had to grapple with a lot of power issues from his family. His father was a, a very... Uh, high-powered lawyer and businessman, and his brothers went off in different directions. And family dynamics were difficult, um, and um, he really chose to um, break off and go on his own, and he went into psychology. So that was kind of the real um, beginning of his awakening, also starting to see his reality and... terms of mind and mind mm-hmm. states and the way other people's minds worked. And he, his psychology training, curiously, was motivational psychology and child development, both of which are, you know, really at the base of what happens to a lot of us in our upbringing. Then he started teaching at Harvard, and he met uh, Timothy Leary, and they both started experimenting with psychedelics. Uh, originally psilocybin, and uh, that really took him outside of his, uh, you know, earlier identity from his upbringing and his kind of upwardly mobile approach mm-hmm. to academia at that point. I mean, he was on a track for tenure at Harvard, and instead he was the uh, first uh, Harvard professor since... Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson to be fired from Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) And why was Ralph Waldo Emerson fired? He uh, actually did some of the same kinds of things. He would not uh, accept the uh, authority of the university. And uh, he was telling people to look within and find their own uh, spiritual identity. And uh, it was not Mm -hmm. particularly, you know, in Christian terms, which Harvard was, uh, you know, it started as a divinity school, I guess. And uh, it was uh, pretty rooted in the establishment of that time, too, of the uh, late 1800s. Well, I mean, the combination uh, of Harvard in our society and then becoming a psychologist or, you know, uh, a doctor, uh, you know, we are, are sort of the pinnacles of making it. And then to to leave that, whether fired or not, is sort of an interesting choice. I mean, I sort of think that we spend a lot of time and money acquiring education in this country. And then you take just a few doses of psychedelics to help you unlearn all the wrong things you were taught or something like that. And this is what I, I think we're finding ourselves in this process of learning and then unlearning necessary unlearning. You know, the psychedelics really took him into his own uh, heart in a 
very both uh, consciousness opening and uh, emotional dimension. And um, mm-hmm. but he did kind of burn out at some point on the psychedelic journey, and he uh, ended up going to uh, India. Um, some of what had come their way in uh, the psychedelic work uh, included things like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which became their model for uh, acid trips, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. In what and, way? Uh, well, it, the uh, ego death that happened with psychedelics, that really radical unlearning process, um, mm-hmm was uh, really mirrored in some of those Eastern teachings. So he went looking for that. He went looking for somebody who could read that map of consciousness. He uh, encountered an old man up in the Himalaya foothills wrapped up in a blanket and uh, completely uh, blew him away because he knew everything that was inside him, all of his experiences and and he was very uh, accepting. It was not. Um, it was not so much about consciousness as it was about love. Can I, you say more about that? I think that first experience of meeting the guru was one of often referred to as unconditional love. He had grown up with um, very conditional love from his family, and you know, uh, had to be a good boy to please his mother and had to be a good lover to please his lovers, and it was called uh, Maharaji, which is sort of an honorific in India. And, you know, you get in a taxi cab and they say, oh, Maharaji, where would you like to go? It means great king. <laughs> it was clear that Maharaji could read his mind and knew what was going on inside him, and yet he was completely accepting of anything that uh, he was carrying, and uh, Ramdas didn't feel like he wanted anything, like Maharaji wanted anything from him. So there was no, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't transactional love at that point. It wasn't emotional mm-hmm. love. It was coming from a, a deeply spiritual place in, in India. It would be called the Atman, uh, the soul uh, in a very universal mm-hmm. way. And, and then you a, met Ram Dass when he yeah, I met you met Ram Dass when back. he came back from Yeah. I never knew Richard mm-hmm. Alpert. So. so he was already Ram Dass. Well, he went to India as Richard Alpert, which was his birth name and he was a professor Alpert at Harvard. And Maharaji gave him the name Ram Dass, which means uh Dass's servant. So I'm a Dass also and we're both in the servant class. Ram is a name of uh, uh, one of the incarnations of uh, God in the Hindu religion. So he was a servant of God. Or as my uh, mother calls him, Ramdas. Yeah, <laughs> my mother well, calls him Ramdas. So I had to figure out who she him, was talking about for a while. His father called him Rumdum for a while. When you met him, what what was that like? Was there in was there some sort of instant recognition or connection? It's a very powerful um, shift for me. Uh, I was in college at the time, and it was actually the 
place where he had done his uh, master's degree in psychology. Um, and um, I, I would call it kind of a, uh, a real shift in point of view more than, uh, you know, it took me a long time to game plan, which I'm still doing. But that shift to a, a spiritual perspective, which is what we started out talking about, mm-hmm. was what happened to me at that point. Right. So and, what did uh, happen to you? Well, I uh, immediately went to see him the next day and said, uh, you know, I want, want some more of this. And uh, he uh, allowed me to come up and visit where he was staying at his family's place in New Hampshire. And I used to drive up there and uh, I learned some of what he had learned of yoga and spiritual practice in India, he passed along. And he did that with a a few people at that time. It was sort of the... And can you remember what what resonated with you? What what made you feel like, I want more of this? You know, Mm -hmm. juxtaposed next to whatever you had learned growing up or who you were at that point. What made you say, this is something I want more of. He was talking a lot about consciousness, but I was feeling that same place of love coming through that um, I think something of what he had felt when he first got to India. And when I got to India uh, about a little over two years later and met Maharaji myself, it was the same feeling of that just unlimited love. Mm-hmm. And uh, that it, it that just feels like home, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like home in the heart. It was very clear to me at that point that the guru had come through him in some way. It was a transmission, uh-huh. transmission overhaul. Right, <laughs> it's beautiful. So he comes back, you know, transmitting love from his guru or from God or wherever it's coming from. But then there are practical realities in the world still going on. And just like we have practical realities that are going on right now that can be disconcerting or troubling or anxiety provoking. And I know that he still sort of took certain actions vis-a-vis social action, politics. You know, how do you reconcile those two, whatever spiritual knowing you're having about unconditional love, and then the day-in, day-out practicalities of a world that doesn't always work well? Well, it's interesting because yoga in its, uh, you know, essence means uh, union. You know, while the practice is trying to find the deeper place of the spirit within yourself, uh, it's also unifying all the other junk. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance... After I met Ramdas and I had learned some yoga from him, and uh, then I graduated from college and uh, almost immediately got drafted. I worked very uh, assiduously at getting myself a psychological deferment. Basically, uh, well, I got uh, a psycho, what's called a 4F in the draft system at the time which means basically uh, you're unfit and uh, you would get called up after the women and children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't want you. And that, that, was, uh, that was fine with me. And then I went to India. India is another kind of basic training yeah. and boot camp. 
It was. Uh, I'm not sure I could do it. Uh, well, I I don't want to be there right now. It's pretty. I I really have a lot of uh, um, worry for the people in India. Things are kind of out of control there, and uh, um, upsetting. And I wouldn't mm -hmm. want to travel there. We were supposed to go uh, last March, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, we canceled about a week before we were due to leave. And the day we were depart originally, the Prime Minister uh, Modi canceled all foreign visas. Mm -hmm. So we might have arrived there and been told to get back on the plane and leave anyway. It's tough enough being in India without uh, a pandemic. And with the pandemic, I'm just concerned that a lot of people will suffer. Right. So if, if Ram Dass was still alive now, what do you think he would be making of what's going on in our country and the world? Well, he certainly tried to bring th those ways of uh, unifying experience to bear on conflicts like this. And when he talked about social action, a, a lot of what he spoke about was how to do it from uh, a place where you can both detach somewhat and love everybody. That was Maharaji's primary teaching was just love everybody right. and try and serve in a way that uh, will help mm -hmm. and not necessarily on a simple material level but to look at uh, the karmic situation that we're all finding ourselves in I mean he used to keep uh, a, a picture of Trump on his altar who did Ramdas Ramdas yeah mm -hmm. As a way of, uh, you know, acknowledging that Trump also is a uh, an embodied soul who is uh, having a tough incarnation. Uh, that that it's a little more of that macro view, I think. Right. But uh, you know, in terms of how we act, it's it's to try and do what you can do from uh, where you are, and not be too attached to how it comes out because we can't really control that. But in practice, what does that mean, love everybody? Well, I mean, in theory, it sounds great, and I subscribe to it, but, <laughs> but in practice, what does it look like? <laughs> uh, I don't know what it looks like. I think it looks different in every situation, but instead of getting caught up in righteous anger, of which there is plenty flying about now. You could be uh, doing what's needed, helping get people out to vote uh, without being angry about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I think we've all learned to some extent, when you get uh, angry, uh, you're the one who ends up suffering from it. Right. I think people forget that. I think you need to repeat that. Can you say that again? <laughs> Probably you better you say it. <laughs> uh, when you get angry about things, you're the one who ends up suffering. Yeah, it hurts the most to the person who's angry. Mm -hmm. And while your anger may be turned outward and affect other people and make them angry too, 
it's still uh, creating more uh, uh, suffering for you. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know that inside, you know, when we, especially. But we can't resist it angry. sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I once asked, the, there was a, a wonderful woman who was taking care of the uh, temple where Maharaji was in India. And we, we were there with our uh, kids when they were five and seven. And we were in India for three months with them. And uh, so I'm at the, you know, at the, my guru's ashram and, um, you know, trying to absorb the, uh, the deep wisdom and the uh, love. And um, I'm getting pissed off at my kids uh, for being kids, <laughs> as, as we do. Yeah, we've all been there. So I asked the, uh, this woman who we called uh, Siddhi Ma. Uh, she was a, had been a mother herself. I mean, she had had a family and been married, and now she was taking care of the ashram. And uh, she said, uh, once the fire starts, it will burn itself out. Mm-hmm. So it's that, you know, it's, it's catching that place in yourself where... Uh, you see it as you start to get angry instead of way down the road when you're recovering from it. And I, I know that in your own life right now, we're trying to a- apply some of these spiritual teachings to a world that seems like it's gone crazy. And I know that in your own life, you've had to deal with um, personal tragedy. Can you share with us um, what happened in your life and uh, and how you've been able to bring your spiritual practices to that? Well, in in brief, my um, daughter was killed in a traffic accident. She was riding her bike in town in East Hampton, and she was run over uh, by a woman driving an SUV who kept going and really ran over her Mm. and um, she died. Mm. Uh, And I was with Ramdas working on this uh, memoir when it happened, I was out in Maui. And uh, I'm not sure, but I think I might've had a heart attack when I heard the news And when we learned that um, she had not survived the trauma surgery at uh, Stony Brook Hospital Mm -hmm. uh, after being airlifted there, um, I looked at Ramdas and I said, she didn't get to finish her life. And he looked straight back at me and said, yes, she did. And just that, that, I mean, that sounds like a a harsh thing to say, but it was much more grounding in a sense at that moment. It it kept me a little bit from uh, running off into my own grief of... Mm -hmm feeling sorry and traumatized 
for myself. And it was that understanding that each of us has our own karma, our own life, and that was hers. And it was painfully for her parents and everyone else uh, around her was uh, she was killed when she was uh, she had just turned 14 it's still painful it doesn't go away um, and I, I wouldn't say that you know anything in terms of spiritual practice did any good at all it just hurt and it still hurts but um, right. I realized that perspective of understanding that um, this is in an incarnation, even the, just the, the conceptual understanding of, of seeing that uh, where each of us are, where I am with uh, uh, suffering and aging and uh, you know, getting sick now and then and all the death that we see around us, that that's a reality. And uh, the lease on this uh, body is um, limited mm -hmm. for all of us. Uh, all, all the practice that y you do becomes part of how you see things. And so what, what did the practices that you did and do, how did it affect your perspective on, uh, on loss? Because as you just shared, you know, you lost your daughter at, at what is a very early age. And, and then last year you lost Ramdas, who, mm -hmm. you know, was a very, very lifelong dear friend. Well, you know, his, his first book was called Be Here Now. Mm -hmm. which is not unrelated to the name of your podcast, but uh, right. <laughs> um, it was intentional, <laughs> inspired <yeah>. by <laughs> his, um, you know, I, th I think that work on ourselves is about becoming more present and that presence is more of who we are than all of the, uh, accomplishments and the body growing up and getting old and dying. I'd say the uh, takeaway for me was that uh, I realize I still uh, have that relationship of uh, love with these beings, with my daughter, with Ramdas, with my guru, with my mother in uh, ways that uh, don't go away. And, you know, of course, the challenge for each of us is to find that place in ourselves so our own death is not as fearful and final a change as uh, we think it might be. And I, I think this might be the good time to talk about, we had a conversation about the Lotus. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think this is the time. Do you want to share about the Lotus? 
No, you go ahead. You could describe that conversation probably as well as I can. Okay. Well, we we were having a, a conversation about the lotus, which is a really beautiful flower. And in fact, I I lived last year in Millbrook, New York, which is where the Hitchcock Mansion is, where Ramdas spent a lot of time. And there's a place there called Innisfree, and uh, it's a big public garden, and it's considered to be one of the ten most beautiful gardens in the world. And uh, they have this body of water that has lotuses all over it. Mm-hmm. And it was it was probably one of the few times in my life that I've gotten to spend a lot of time near lotuses and lotuses, as most people people who have seen them or have not seen them, uh, they grow above the water, and they're these beautiful, often white um, flower. You can correct me, Ramesh. You are uh, um, much more uh, well versed on plants than I am, but um, they grow on the water. But then underneath the surface of the water is this tangled mess of gunk and root that sustains this beautiful flower. And we were sort of talking about how, you know, one, one could justify wanting to cut off that flower and float it in just a plain bowl of water in their house, uh, disconnected from that tangle of slimy roots beneath it. But then it would shortly die um, after that. And uh, so we were talking about how that is life. The, the beauty comes from this tangle of mess. And, and to me, that was such a profound conversation because I think we are living in a time where so much seems like the naughty, slimy, tangled mess underneath the lotus. And we're so focused on that, that we really are, are failing to see where the beauty is. Um, and I think there's a lot of beauty around us right now. Um, but you can't disconnect the two. They are part of each other. And I don't know, I'll let you say whatever you want to say in terms of what, what you liked about that conversation, but it has certainly stayed with me all week as a reminder to embrace the whole of, of lots of different things. Yeah, I think you uh, nailed it uh, pretty well of it being uh, trying to experience the perfection of the imperfection of all of this stuff that we uh, are assaulted by daily. And yet uh, there is this uh, almost formless, uh, affectionate place that we can also share in the middle of that. And just finding a way to take a breath in between the uh, painful moments and see it all. There's a a festival at this time of year in uh, India that's to the the mother. It's like the big harvest festival kind of in the fall. It's called uh, Durga Puja. And Mm -hmm. Durga is this... uh, many-armed goddess who uh, removes obstacles and demons and anything. Is she the same thing as Kali Ma? Uh, Kali is an aspect of Durga. Kali is the dark uh, black goddess who uh, uh, chops off the heads of uh, anything that's in the way of that uh, maternal uh, love. 
Uh, it's like uh, if you think about uh, somebody getting between a mother and her child, you don't want to be in between. Right. <laughs> it's like a mother defending her child. Mm -hmm. But so anyway, you were saying about the festival. So the festival is very much about seeing uh, the, all of reality as the mother. That's what the divine mother is in India. It's everything. Mm -hmm. It's the whole manifestation. Mm -hmm. They see the manifestation of, as kind of maternal and uh, uh, female. And the male energy is more of the consciousness and the female energy is like the, the energy of manifestation, mm -hmm. which we're in the middle of. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I saw this um, meme last week that said, you know, as we're approaching the election, it, it said the left wing and the right wing are still part of the same bird. <laughs> That's good. And, um, you know, and I just as I look around, um, you know, I, I see each of the different sides wanting to cut, you know, each of the different sides views themselves as either the lotus or the root. And and wanting to cut off the other part and not realizing you can't do it or the whole thing dies. So I, I, I am sort of questioning. And, and also this thing that you, you just said about Jorga, because destruction is a part of creation. So maybe some aspect of what, what has been has to be completely destroyed in order for us to build in, in a new way. I mean, you know, this probably, better than anyone because you're a gardener that, you know, you have to cut everything back uh, and trust that it's going to grow again in the spring. Yeah. I find myself, I get into composting a lot, <laughs> <laughs> which is <laughs> turning it all into more dirt to right. grow more stuff the yeah. next time around. So and, speaking uh, of growing more stuff, uh, before yeah. we, we complete today, I know that the book that you worked on out in January of 2021. And I was just wondering if you wanted to share anything with us about the book. Well, I, you know, one of the uh, aspects of uh, uh, our uh, guru was that he always had impeccable timing. And I think Ramdas talks about in the book, I think is a lot of what we've just talked about in this uh, get together about how to deal with life. And um, he had a pretty remarkable perspective on it. Um, and it evolved from, you know, seeing the motivational and psychological stuff that we all carry around to uh, these transcendent states with psychedelics to really finding a place of love for everyone and everything. Mm. And I think he really lived his last years in that, uh, immersed in that ocean of love. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's, I, I think, a good, uh, uh, some good help at this time in our uh, evolution. Yeah, I know. I'm for looking forward to the book. And uh, Immersed in the Ocean of Love is something that I look forward to reading about. Hopefully not submerged in the ocean of love, but immersed. <laughs>
there is a uh, Bengali saint named uh, Ramakrishna who uh, founded a whole order. And he was a Kali devotee, by the way. Mm. And uh, he had an analogy of a, uh, a salt doll being uh, immersed in the ocean. And it just merges into the ocean. And I think in a way that's where we're all going. Yeah. You're hearing my Audubon clock in the background. I am. I thought it was an actual bird. <laughs> or may, maybe it's Ramdas. Yep. <laughs> I, I just wanted to thank you so much for being with us today and and sharing your story and giving us, or certainly giving me some hope for how I can conduct myself in the weeks to come and beyond. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's, uh, and beyond <laughs> is where we're all dealing with at this yeah. point. And, uh, you know, allowing it all to be is, uh, tough work, yeah. but, uh, it's what we got. Yeah. But worthy, worthy of doing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ramesh. The When Is Now is co-hosted by Michelle Fiordaliso and Zora Alunga-Reed. It's produced in Los Angeles, California by Jack Zager. For more information on the 21-day coaching program and for complete show notes, visit thewhenisnow.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, the when is now.